Welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, December 30th, 2022. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Here's our first story. New county leaders take oath. Loomis begins first term as county attorney. This is by Caitlin Yamada out of Sioux City. The basement boardroom at the Woodbury County Courthouse was full of smiles and congratulations Thursday as newly elected and re-elected county employees were sworn in. James Loomis officially took the position of Woodbury County Attorney, joining newly elected Supervisor Dan Bittinger, Treasurer Tina Bertrand, and re-elected Supervisor Matthew Ung. Loomis's wife Cassie stood with him while Judge Robert Tiefenthaler swore him in. The basement meeting room was full of family members, friends, and staff witnessing those taking the oaths of office. Loomis, 45, a Winterset, Iowa native, who lives near Bronson, said the ceremony was rewarding. I really worked hard to get to this point, so I'm very grateful for all the help that I received this past year in the campaign, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity I have to serve as the county attorney, he said. He defeated his boss, Patrick P.J. Jennings, a Democrat who is seeking his fifth four-year term in office, securing 59% of the vote. Loomis pledged to improve the office's engagement with law enforcement and elected officials in every town, large or small, in the county during the election cycle. The first thing Loomis wants to address is the current open positions. He said it's his number one priority heading into January. From there, it's just a manner of me following through with what I said before, he said. I wanted to have an office that's engaged, that communicates effectively, and that forms partnerships with law enforcement and community leaders so that we can most effectively serve all of Woodbury County. Loomis already worked for the county as an assistant prosecutor for 19 years and said he has been able to gather ideas he thinks will work and had been working to implement them over time. Loomis previously complimented Jennings on his 16 years of service. I'm grateful for PJ for all the wonderful things he's done for the office, Loomis said in November. It is currently unknown what Jennings' plans are. The journal's attempts to contact Jennings were unsuccessful. Woodbury County Treasurer Tina Bertrand was sworn into her first full term. The Republican incumbent ran unopposed. She was chosen by the county's Board of Supervisors in April 2021, to serve the remainder of the term of former treasurer Mike Clayton, who retired. Two Woodbury County Board of Supervisors members were also sworn in on Thursday. The ceremony was a first for political newcomer Dan Bittinger. It feels like the journey is just beginning, and it feels that all the hard work has paid off, he said. It feels like the beginning of a new adventure. The newly elected District 2 Republican is a lead pastor at Cross Point Church and has lived in Sioux City for the past nine years. This was Bittinger's first time running for an elected position. He received 62% of the vote, handily defeating Democrat Jeremy Dumkrieger. He will replace Republican Justin Wright, who did not seek re-election. During the election cycle, Bittinger said his top priorities were budget accountability, economic development, and sheriff's department support. He said he is less focused on issues he wants to address and more on what concerns the county staff and community bring forward. His goal is to address issues as they arise, learn about them, and plan for the long-term implications. Now sworn in, Bittinger said he plans to meet county employees and get to know their needs, especially now that the county is heading into budget season. Each year, the supervisors make it their goal to keep taxes the same or lower. Bittinger said he wants to take time to learn what the budgetary needs are and what the priorities are ahead of the work. 
Republican Matthew Ung was sworn into his third term on the county board Tuesday in District 4. He was unopposed. Normally, the ceremony would have taken place at the beginning of the new year, but due to scheduling and the New Year's holiday, Auditor Pat Gill said it was recommended to do it early and prevent a potential lapse in the term. Our next story is Southwest, Normal Flight Operations to Resume Friday. By David Koenig from the Associated Press, this is out of Dallas. Southwest Airlines said it expected to return to normal operations Friday after more than a week of widespread flight cancellations that started with a winter storm and spiraled out of control because of a breakdown with staffing technology. If Thursday turns out to be the last day of the Southwest crisis, it will be marked by 2,350 canceled flights, nearly 60% of the airline's schedule. Southwest declined to say how many people have been affected, but it is likely that far more than one million have had a flight canceled. The airline scrapped more than 13,000 flights since December 22nd, according to tracking service FlightAware. Its planes have 143 to 175 seats and were likely nearly fully booked around the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Airline executives said that crew scheduling technology, a major cause of the meltdown, has caught up with a backlog of pilots and flight attendants stranded in wrong locations. Southwest operated 1,600 flights on Thursday, including 104 that carried no passengers, but instead served to put planes and crews in position for full operations on Friday. Southwest Airlines believe they will have enough empty seats over the next several days to accommodate any stranded passengers still wishing to fly on the airline, while conceding that many had either given up or found other transportation. Southwest will refund tickets on canceled flights, and executives repeated a promise to reimburse travelers who were forced to pay for hotel rooms, meals, and flights on other airlines. The airline's chief commercial officer said that process will take several weeks. Executives said the airline will also pay to ship baggage that is piled up at airports around the country. Southwest lost $75 million during a much smaller disruption in October 2021 that resulted in about 2,000 canceled flights over a four-day stretch. CEO Robert Jordan said it was too early to say how much the company will lose in revenue and incur in extra costs because of the current crisis. Jordan told reporters that events of the last week likely will cause Southwest to re-examine priorities and spending levels for technology improvements that already were underway, but offered no specifics. This has been an incredible disruption, and we can't have that again, he said. Southwest has struggled to recover after being overwhelmed by a winter storm that swept the country last week. Other airlines bounced back within a couple days, but Southwest ran short of ground workers at airports in Denver and Chicago, and its problems exploded from there. On Thursday, Southwest accounted for about 95% of all canceled flights in the United States. Executives said they had canceled only 39, or less than 1% of the schedule, for Friday. Jordan faces a crisis just 11 months after he became CEO. Southwest had 88 planes and 7,000 employees when Jordan joined 35 years ago. Now it has more than 700 planes and more than 60,000 employees. Speaking to reporters a month ago at Southwest headquarters in Dallas, Jordan spoke in glowing terms about the airline's culture and customer service. He outlined five priorities, including modernizing the airline's technology for scheduling pilots and flight attendants. 
under Southwest system, which dates to the 1990s, when crew members are reassigned to a different flight or even change hotels, someone needs to call them or basically in the airport chase them down and tell them what their reroute looks like, Jordan said. I do think the scale and the growth of the airline got ahead of the tools that we have, he said. No fault of anybody takes investment and we'll get all this done. The federal government is investigating what happened at Southwest. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg took fresh swipes at the airline on Thursday, tweeting that he would hold Southwest responsible for unacceptable performance. He asked the followers to tell his department if Southwest fails to reimburse them for travel costs. Southwest added a page to its website for stranded travelers, and it invited customers to submit receipts for unexpected expenses. The airline said it would consider reimbursing reasonable expenses for meals, hotel rooms, and alternate transportation incurred between December 24th and January 2nd. Consumer advocates criticized the use of the word reasonable as too vague. Investors cheered signs that Southwest might finally be getting a handle on the crisis. The company's shares rose nearly 4%, but were still down nearly 8% for the week. Southwest has been the most profitable U.S. airline so far this year, earning $759 million in net income through September. Raymond James airline analyst Savanthi Sith said Thursday that she still expects the company to post a small profit in the fourth quarter, but some consumers are likely to switch from Southwest to other airlines over the next few months. Another airline analyst, Colin Scarola of CFRA, said he too didn't expect the Christmas week fiasco to have a lasting impact because Southwest often has lower fares than its three largest rivals, American, United, and Delta. History shows customers tend to not to permanently ditch an airline even after an awful experience due to the commodity-like nature of the product, he wrote in a note to clients. Our next story is out of Spencer, Iowa, Season Center to Receive $2 Million Grant by Dolly Butts. Season Center for Behavioral Health will receive $400,000 a year for the next five years to enhance partnerships in rural northwest Iowa. Season Center has been offering a broad range of psychiatric and behavioral health services in northwest Iowa since 1959. According to a statement from the center, the funding, which comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, National Child Traumatic Stress Initiative, will increase access to specialized trauma-informed and evidence-based mental health services for foster, adoptive, and kinship children and their families. With the support of this grant, we can ensure foster, adoptive, and kinship children and their families have access to appropriate supports and treatment and agencies and professionals have the resources and support needed to provide high-quality foster adoptive services, Dan Reese, president and CEO of Season Center, said in the statement. Season's Family Support Center will focus on children and families from a variety of placement settings, including return to biological family, relative placement, fictive kin placement, foster care, and adoptive children. Programs will include outpatient therapy, family peer support, care coordination, respite care, and training education. Through employment of staff with lived experience 
As foster, adoptive, or kinship parents, a strong focus of this program is to walk alongside other families in navigating systems, working through change, and providing necessary training and support. Our goal for the Family Support Center is to ensure families are able to easily access behavioral health services, resources, and supports, said Christina Egink-Postma, Seasons Vice President of Program Coordination and Compliance at Seasons. The SAMHSA grant will allow us to improve mental and behavioral health and well-being, increase access to prevention and early intervention services, and enhance access to community services and supports for foster, adoptive, and kinship families. As a grantee, Season Center joins the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. The network the network's mission is to raise the standard of care and improve access to services for traumatized children, their families, and communities throughout the United States. We have a couple briefs this morning. The first one, Sioux City Man wins $10,000 lottery prize. Snow isn't always so bad. Tuesday, Sioux City resident Mitchell Vanderschaff claimed a $10,000 prize in the Iowa Lottery's Snow Much Fun scratch-off game. Vandershaft purchased the winning $2 ticket at Sarge's Mini Mart at 2329 West 2nd Street in Sioux City. The scratch game has eight prizes of $10,000. The Iowa Lottery places the overall odds of having a winning ticket of any kind at 1 in 3.71. Vandershaft won the third of the eight prizes for the game. The other brief, man pleads not guilty of Morningside stabbing out of Sioux City. A winning Iowa man has pleaded not guilty of stabbing another man outside a Morningside convenience store. Michael Carson Jr., 36, entered his written plea Wednesday in Woodbury County District Court to charges of first-degree burglary, burglary, willful injury, and going armed with intent. Carson is charged with stabbing a 53-year-old man at Sam's Mini Mart at 4218 Morningside Avenue on December 12th. According to court documents, the man was getting into his vehicle at the store when another vehicle pulled in behind him and blocked him. Carson got out of the vehicle, walked up to the victim who was sitting in the driver's seat, and began stabbing him in the right forearm. Carson then got back in his vehicle and drove away. Police located it a short time later and arrested Carter. The victim was treated for non-life-threatening injuries. Our next article is entitled Christmas Tree Recycling is a Good Alternative to Landfills by John Rabbi of the Associated Press. Taking down the Christmas tree is only one task after the holiday season. For those with a real tree, figuring out what to do with it can be as easy as placing it by the curb. In most states, it can be the gift that keeps on giving. Discarded Christmas trees can be picked up curbside for recycling through regular trash collection services in various cities. The trees are often shredded for use as compost or mulch that is offered back to residents and nonprofit groups free of charge for gardening and landscaping. In many states, natural resources workers collect whole trees at predetermined drop-off points to be placed in lakes and waterways as fish habitat. In parts of Louisiana, for example, Christmas trees are used to shore up coastal areas hit by erosion and to rebuild wetlands. In Jefferson Parish alone, about 5,000 trees are collected each year for such efforts. Some zoos, including petting zoos, accept chemical and ornament-free Christmas trees to feed to some animals, such as goats, pigs, and elephants, 
and for sensory and entertainment purposes for others like kangaroos, lions, camels, and rhinos. Or there's no place like home. Discarded trees can get their final resting place in a corner of the backyard as a shelter and feeding area for birds. Be sure to remove the ornaments, lights, and tinsel. Placing a tarp around the tree before taking it back outside will spare frustrations in having to vacuum up the pine needles afterward. Some websites offer a way to search for local tree recycling programs. Home Depot stores in select areas also hold tree collection events. But don't wait too long after Christmas, because dried-out trees can be fire hazards. It's also dangerous to try to use a fireplace or wood stove to burn parts of the tree, because the oils in them could cause chimney fires. Perhaps the worst place to send discarded live Christmas trees is a landfill, because materials buried there break down into the greenhouse gas methane, considered more harmful than carbon dioxide. Okay, we're going to turn to the nation and world section. And the top story is here about the war in Ukraine. Power stations blasted. Russia fires dozens of missiles at key facilities across invaded country. This is by Renata Brito and Hannah Ararova from the Associated Press. It's out of Kiev, Ukraine. Russian missiles hit Ukraine Thursday in the biggest wave of strikes in weeks, damaging power stations and other critical infrastructure during freezing winter weather. Russia fired 69 missiles at energy facilities, and Ukrainian forces shot down 54. Ukrainian military chief general Valery Zelunyi said, Officials said attacks killed at least two people around Kharkiv, Ukraine's second-largest city. The strikes also wounded at least seven people across the country, although the toll of the attacks was growing. About 90% of Lviv, most of the southern city of Odessa, and nearby areas were left without power, officials said. Russia dispatched explosive drones to selected regions overnight before broadening the barrage with air and sea-based missiles, the Ukrainian Air Force said. Air raid sirens rang out across the country, and the military activated air defense systems in Kyiv, the region, excuse me, the regional administration said. Ukraine's defense ministry said the attack damaged 18 residential buildings and 10 pieces of critical infrastructure in 10 regions. Russia has attacked Ukrainian power and water supplies almost weekly since October, while its ground forces struggle to hold ground and advance. Mayor Vitaly Klitschko warned of power outages in the capital, asking people to stockpile water and charge their electronic devices. In the southeastern Kyiv district of Bortnechi, an explosion flattened at least one house and broke the doors, roofs, and windows of several others. Yana Densenko went through broken glass inside her grandparents' home to collect personal items. Though she does not live there, she came immediately after the explosion and found her wounded mother, sister, and 14-year-old niece in ambulances. Densenko hugged her tearful grandmother, Angelina, who was at work when the explosion happened. I'm scared to see all this, how many mothers are crying, Angelina said. I want my children to recover. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba called the attacks senseless barbarism. There can be no neutrality in the face of such mass war crimes. Pretending to be neutral equals taking Russia's side, Kuleba tweeted. Meanwhile, a telegram channel affiliated with the Presidential Press Service of Belarus said a Ukrainian S-300 
air defense missile landed in Belarusian territory early Thursday. It said the missile could have veered off course accidentally, and there were no casualties. The foreign ministry of Belarus, Russia's ally, summoned the Ukrainian ambassador to demand a thorough investigation and for Ukraine to hold those responsible to account. The next story is titled, Netanyahu Makes His Comeback. Country Gets Its Most Right-Wing Religious Government Sworn In. By Isabel Debre and Joseph Fetterman with the Associated Press. This is out of Jerusalem. Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday returned to power for an unprecedented sixth term as Israeli's prime minister, taking the helm of the most right-wing and religiously conservative government in the country's 74-year history. The swearing-in ceremony capped a remarkable comeback for Netanyahu, who was ousted last year after 12 consecutive years in power. But he faces numerous challenges, leading an alliance of religious and far-right parties that could cause domestic and regional turmoil and alienate Israeli's closest allies. His new government pledged to prioritize settlement expansion in the occupied West Bank, extend subsidies to his ultra-Orthodox allies, and push for reform of the judicial system that critics say could endanger the country's democratic institutions. The plans have sparked an uproar in Israeli society, prompting criticism from the military, LGBTQ rights groups, the business community, and others, and raised concerns abroad. In a stormy parliamentary session before his swearing-in, the combative Netanyahu took aim at his critics, accusing the opposition of trying to scare the public. I hear the constant cries of the opposition about the end of the country and democracy, he said from the podium. Opposition members, to lose in elections is not the end of democracy. This is the essence of democracy. His speech was interrupted repeatedly by boos and jeers from opponents who chanted, weak, weak an apparent reference to the concessions he made to his new governing partners. Outside Parliament, several thousand demonstrators waved Israeli and rainbow gay pride flags. We don't want fascists in the the Neset, they chanted. Crowds of LGBTQ supporters shouted, Shame! Blocked the entrance to a major intersection and highway in Tel Aviv. Later, Netanyahu held a meeting with his new cabinet saying his priorities would include halting Iran's nuclear program, strengthening law and order, combating the country's high cost of living, and expanding Israel's burgeoning relations with the Arab world. Netanyahu is the country's longest-serving prime minister, having held office for a total of 15 years. The country remains deeply divided over Netanyahu, who remains on trial over charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in three corruption cases. He denies all charges. Abortion rights activists use religious freedom argument. Arleigh Rogers from the Associated Press wrote this article, and it's out of Indianapolis. Kara Berg Ronick watched with bafflement as Indiana's Republican legislators took less than two weeks to debate and pass an abortion bill that the governor signed quickly into law. The women's health nurse practitioner from Indianapolis was struck by just how frequently faith was cited in the arguments as reasons to ban the medical practice. But Berg Ronick, who is Jewish, said those views go against her beliefs. To her, a pregnant woman's health and life is paramount, and she disagreed with legislators' assertions that life begins at conception, calling that a Christian definition. That is a religious and values-based comment, said Berg Ronick. 
A fetus is potential life, and that is worthy of great respect and is not to be taken lightly, but it does not supersede the life and health of the mother, period. Arguments like this were central to an Indiana lawsuit filed in September against the state's abortion ban, which is on hold amid multiple legal challenges. On December 2nd, a judge ruled the ban violates the state's religious freedom law, signed by then-Republican Governor Mike Pence in 2015. Critics of religious freedoms laws often argue they are used to discriminate against LGBTQ people and only protect a conservative Christian worldview. But following the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in June, religious abortion rights supporters are using these laws to protect access to abortion and defend their beliefs. The Dobbs v. Jackson ruling left abortion rights up to the states. As a result, lower courts in at least five states, including Indiana, have issued rulings in abortion-related religious freedom lawsuits. January 6 panel dropped subpoena of Trump. Former president and his lawyers construe withdrawal as victory. From the Associated Press out of Washington. The House January 6 committee dropped its subpoena against former President Donald Trump as it wraps up work and prepares to dissolve next week. Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson, the committee's Democratic chairman, wrote in a letter to Trump lawyer David Warrington on Wednesday that he is formally withdrawing the subpoena. As you know, the select committee has concluded its hearings, released its final report, and will very soon reach its, its end, Thompson wrote. In light of the imminent end of our investigation, the select committee can no longer pursue the specific information covered by the subpoena. On social media Wednesday evening, Trump and his lawyers construed the move as a victory. The committee had voted to subpoena Trump during its final televised hearing before the midterm elections in October, demanding testimony and documents from the former president as it investigated his role in the January 6, 2021 Capitol insurrection and efforts to overturn his 2020 defeat. Lawmakers on the panel acknowledged the subpoena would be difficult to enforce, especially as Republicans will take over the House in January. The committee issued its final report last week and recommended the Justice Department investigate Trump for four separate crimes. The next article is Biden Faces International Climate Aid Challenge by Benjamin Hulak out of the CQ Roll Call out of Washington. Even with Democrats narrowly controlling both houses of Congress, President Joe Biden was unable to convince lawmakers to fully fund his requests for contributions in fiscal 2022 or 2023 to international funds that help poor nations address climate change. Biden pledged to the United Nations in 2021 that the U.S. would give $11.4 billion annually to such funds starting in fiscal 2024. Republicans, who have opposed most climate change-related spending, will have a majority in the House next year, so Biden will face a tough fight to meet that pledge. Biden, on December 23, signed the fiscal 2023 omnibus spending legislation, which included $1.6 billion for climate finance programs, a far cry from the $5.3 billion the administration wanted. Looking at the numbers, it is very it very much looks like a repeat of last year. Joe Thwaites, who tracks international climate finance at the National Resources Defense Council, said by phone, it just conforms to a pattern of the U.S. making commitments on climate finance and failing to deliver. The funding letdown for the administration comes a month after negotiators 
excuse me, after negotiators reached a breakthrough deal at UN climate talks in Egypt to create a new fund to help poor and at-risk nations endure climate disasters driven in large part by the world's wealthiest nations. 23 rich countries are responsible for about half of the emissions since the dawn of the industrial age, but account for far less of the Earth's population, about 12%. Data from the climate database Global Carbon Project shows. Rachel Cletus, policy director and lead economist at the Union of Concerned Scientists Climate and Energy Program, said the amount of money for climate finance is shameful and represents a cut once inflation is taken into account. The climate crisis has precipitated a terrible, inequitable burden on poorer nations that desperately need funding to transition to clean energy and adapt to mounting climate impacts, Cletus said. Thwaites and other experts said the administration can turn to some agencies, like the Export-Import Bank or the Development Finance Corporation, to fund climate projects through their general budgets. Thwaites contrasted the funding stagnation with the new climate, health care, and tax law that brought the U.S. some climate credibility on the world stage, where America has long been viewed skeptically. There, are some decent, there was some decent momentum there, and for the first time in forever, pretty much, the questions around if the U.S. can meet its targets has faded, said Thwaites, who attended the Egypt talks in November. For the first time, there is now credibility behind the U.S. climate goal of cutting emissions. Developed nations promised in 2009 they would provide at least $100 billion annually for countries on the front lines of climate change to adapt to the effects of a warming planet. As the U.S. lags behind other Western powers, such as the European Union, which contributed about $24 billion in 2021 to climate finance programs, It is prodding other nations to increase their donations. But U.S. credibility on climate finance is almost none, Thwaites said. There is a U.S.-sized hole in the $100 billion billion budget. Excuse me. There is a U.S.-sized hole in the $100 billion climate pledge. 100 organizations last month wrote to Biden and House and Senate leaders pushing for a minimum of $3.76 billion for climate finance. The amount included in spending legislation that came out of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee that funds the State Department. In the final spending bill, Congress provided no funding for the Green Climate Fund, a U.N.-backed pool of money to help low-income nations address climate change, the same as in fiscal 2022. The final text provides $150.2 million for the Global Environmental Facility, a multilateral fund matching what Biden requested, but lawmakers provided $125 million for the Clean Technology Fund, managed at the World Bank, less than the $550 million the White House wanted, and equal to who enacted funding for fiscal 2022. Congress provided about $52 million for the Montreal Protocol Multilateral Fund, roughly equal to current spending levels, but less than the $64 million the administration requested, and $15 million for two international climate bodies. The administration may also tap into a fund at state, the Economic Support Fund, to help make its target. Some money could also be moved into climate-specific funds as loans. Beyond international wrangling over money, it's people hammered by climate impacts in places like East Africa, where drought is causing famine and the worst food security crisis for the continent in 20 years, who will suffer from climate finance delays, said Niranjali Amarasingh, 
Executive Director of ActionAid USA, the American wing of an international humanitarian group. They're the ones who suffer the most from all of this, she said. There's just absolutely no attention given to international climate finance. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Our first obituary is Robert B. Phelps out of Kingsley, Iowa. Robert B. Phelps, 88, of Kingsley, passed away on Sunday, December 25, 2022. Private family services will be held with burial to follow at the Kingsley Cemetery. The Johnson Ernest Funeral Home in Kingsley is assisting Bob's family with arrangements. Expressions of sympathy may be shared with the family through MaurerJohnsonFH.com. Robert Brooks Phelps was born on January 5th, excuse me, January 1st, 1934, in Kingsley, to Floyd and Helen Wiley Phelps. He was Sue Land's first New Year's baby. Robert joked that January 1st was the worst day for a birthday, as everybody has a party that day, but it's not for you. He grew up in Kingsley, where he graduated from high school in 1952. Following high school, Robert attended Grinnell College. He was a standout football player. As a nationally ranked javelin thrower, he broke both school and conference records in the process. Many stories were told of this time period. His best javelin marks seemed to grow as he aged. After graduation, he attended one year of law school and graduated from Wisconsin Graduate School of Banking. Next, he took a banking job with Bankers Trust in Des Moines. After hours, he helped manage a gym. His focus was on resistance training at a time before it was generally accepted. It became a lifelong hobby. In 1963, Robert came back to Kingsley to reorganize, along with his brother George, the private Oltman and Phelps Bank into a state-chartered bank that later became Kingsley State Bank in 1965. As a boy, he was the bank's janitor, eventually working his way up to president. He retired in 2019 as chairman of the board. He was very committed to the bank, often boasting that his bank had the best possible employees because he hired them. Additionally, he would say the second a customer walks in the door, you truly have to want to help any way you can, or you shouldn't be working there. Another another of his favorite pastimes was preaching to anybody who would listen to why Kingsley is the best place to live. Kingsley State Bank and its branches were rated five stars by various rating agencies under his watch. Robert served on the board of directors of the Plymouth County Work Activity Center and represented Kingsley Pearson and Hinton Community School Districts on the Plymouth County Board of Education before it was merged into Area Agency Education Agency 12. Other community service included both Lions Club, President, Treasurer, and Kingsley's, Kingsley's United Methodist Church Treasurer for 17 years. But most importantly, Robert's faith was in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. On June 10, 1961, Robert was united in marriage to Carol Edith Jensen, his college love interest in Loyal, Wisconsin. Every morning, Robert would wake up with his kids and grandkids on his mind as his first priority. His activities were scheduled around their activities. He fostered these relationships in many ways, but mostly through countless notes and letters. Robert rarely traveled for leisure except for an occasional ski trip. 
Eventually, he and his cronies built a makeshift west side ski slope west of Kingsley with telephone poles and tow rope powered by an old Ford truck on top of the hill on blocks with incision attachments on the tire for the rope. He also enjoyed spending time at Okoboji with family and observing nature in his timber. As an advocate of staying active for health, he was still biking an hour plus per day close to his passing. Outdoors, he used a three-wheel recumbent bike and a stationary bike for indoors. He is survived by his wife, Carol E. Phelps of Kingsley, daughter, Allison A. Hugavine, and her husband, Donley of Kingsley, son, Robert W. Phelps of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, son, Scott C. Phelps, and his wife, Laura of Okoboji, grandsons, Colton Phelps of Ankeny, Iowa, and Nick Phelps of Iowa City, Iowa, granddaughter, Kiana Phelps of Tucson, Arizona, sister, Sally Wells of Troy, Michigan, Sister-in-law Linda Phelps of Kingsley, brother-in-law Bob Krantz of Eden Prairie, Minnesota, and nieces and nephews Alex Wells of Park City, Utah, David Phelps of Sioux City, Jenny Kratz and Dave Otio of Minnetonka, Minnesota, Katie Kratz and John Zimmerman of Bloomington, Minnesota, and Greg Kratz of Portland, Oregon. He was preceded in death by his parents, Sister Janet Kratz, brother George Phelps, granddaughter Krista Phelps, nephew Campbell Wells, and cousin John Phelps. We also have Donna Van Wart Wendell out of Sioux City, 86, died Tuesday, December 27th. Services are pending with Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Daniel Joseph Shoup out of Sioux City, 77, died Tuesday, December 27th. Services are January 4th at 11 a.m. Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, Matter Day Parish. Burials at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation is one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements with Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel. Orville Fiato, out of Akron, Iowa, 89, died Sunday, December 25th. Services will be January 6th at 2 p.m. St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Akron. Burial St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery in Akron with military honors. Visitation is January 5th from 4 to 6 p.m. Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Akron and resumes January 6th from 1 to 1.30 p.m. at the funeral home. Celebration of life following burial at St. Patrick's Parish Hall, Akron. Karen L. Nissen of Sioux City, 69, died Wednesday, December 28th. Services are January 3rd at 11 a.m. St. Thomas Episcopal Church, Visitation January 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Live stream is available at the Funeral Homes website. Okay, we're going to turn to some sports today. Our first headline is Iowa Seniors Stick Together. Jack Campbell, four other defenders to play final game Saturday. By Steve Batterson. Jack Campbell will end his University of Iowa football career the same way he started it, by remaining true to his word. The Buckus Award-winning linebacker is one of six seniors on defense who will make what could be their final starts for the Hawkeyes in Saturday's Tans Perfect Music City Bowl. When I signed a letter of intent to come to Iowa, I signed up to play in every game. I was healthy enough to play in and to consider not playing in the bowl. That just didn't seem right to me, Campbell said. While he said he respects decisions made by others to opt out of the 11 a.m. game at Nashville's Nissan Stadium, 
Campbell viewed opting to take the field against Kentucky as the best thing he could do with this year's team. It means a lot to me. Iowa's a very special place, a unique place, and it says something that a lot of guys wanted to play one more game together, Campbell said. I wanted to play one more game for Coach Kirk Ferentz, and more importantly, I wanted to be there with my teammates and play for each other. There's some real meaning to that, and I'm excited to go out there and compete. Cornerback Riley Moss understands. The rematch against a Kentucky team that edged Iowa 20-17 to in the Citrus Bowl on New Year's Day comes one day shy of a year since Moss thought he might be playing in his final game as a Hawkeye. Days later, he chose to use the additional year of eligibility the NCAA offered to all players impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and in retrospect, Moss is glad he did. When I decided to stay last year, I did it because this is the one and only opportunity that I'll have in my life to wear the black and gold, and I'm so happy I made that choice, Moss said. I'm excited to have one more chance to go out with the boys and hopefully wrap up my career with a win. Safety Kayvon Merriweather is the only Iowa starter who opted out of playing the in the game to begin NFL draft preparations. The all-Big Ten choice was part of a Hawkeye defense which has created its own legacy, something Campbell and Moss both appreciate. Iowa has allowed opponents just 4.10 yards per play, the fewest yards surrendered per play by any defense this season in the football bowl subdivision. The 7-5 to five Hawkeyes have given up fewer than 200 yards in five games and have held opponents to 13 or fewer points nine times. Eight of those opponents have totaled 10 or fewer points, something the Hawkeyes last accomplished in 1929. Iowa limited eight opponents to under 100 rushing yards, held all 12 opponents below their season offensive yardage, av- yardage average, and held 10 teams below their season scoring average. We've done a lot of good things together, and the guys who are here, they want to experience that again, Moss said. It's kind of different playing Kentucky, Kentucky again in a bowl for a second straight year, but that's fine. There's still a bit of a bitter taste from the game last year, the way it ended, so a second chance here, and the chance to collect one more memory. It's crazy how fast it goes by, senior defensive end John Wagner said. The last game, it's here. It seems like I just got here, and now this is it. I'm glad we are here and have the chance to take on an excellent opponent. Wagner said that stuck with him as much as anything from last year's Citrus Bowl experience. They're an SEC SEC team. They're fast and they're physical, and we have to be ready for that, Wagner said. Being ready won't be an issue for senior defensive tackle Noah Shannon, While he continues to contemplate returning for the additional year of eligibility, he has an opportunity to utilize. Shannon said it hit him last weekend that this could also be the conclusion of his college career. Our practice on Christmas Eve back at the indoor facility, our last practice in Iowa City, it hit me that that might be the last time that I practiced there, the last time that defensive line coach Kelvin Bell coached me there, Shannon said. It felt weird And then I thought back to my freshman year when Matt Nelson and Sam Brinks were seniors, how they were talking then about wanting that last game to be the best. I see that now. It's the last time this team will be together. That is what brought Campbell and his teammates back. One last chance to put that tiger hawk on the side of my head and compete as a Hawkeye, said Campbell. When you're as invested as we all have been, that chance means an awful lot. Max's Wild Ride at TCU Horned Frogs quarterback Dugan goes from lost job to playoff. This is by Stephen Hawkins from the Associated Press. 
It has been a wild four-year ride at TCU for quarterback Max Dugan. He needed unexpected heart surgery before his sophomore year and played most of last season with a broken bone in his foot. He then went from losing his starting job, going into this season, with a new coaching staff, to being the Heisman Trophy runner-up, whose 42nd career start will come Saturday in the college football playoff semifinal against Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. Every time something's gone bad, I've never seen him panic. I've never seen him complain, All-American guard Steve Avila said. He plays so hard, I've never seen a quarterback take hits like him and just get up and walk it off, both on and off the field. When new coach Sonny Dykes and offensive coordinator Garrett Riley initially chose redshirt freshman Chandler Morris as their starting quarterback, Dugan was disappointed in himself. But he said he wasn't mad at the new coaches and never considered leaving TCU. You get over it pretty quickly, Dugan said, because there's a season to be played. A season that could have turned out much differently for TCU, which is 12-1, and without Dugan, the fourth-year senior who has taken nearly every snap since coming on in the second half of the opener after Morris sprained his knee. Dugan has thrown for 3,321 yards with 30 touchdowns and four interceptions and run for 404 yards with six more scores. He led three consecutive second-half comeback wins over ranked Big 12 teams in October and in late November, avoided a playoff-busting loss at Baylor with two scoring drives at the end of the game, while standout receiver Quinton Johnston and leading rusher Kendra Miller were both on the sideline hurt. Down 11 points midway through the fourth quarter to Kansas State in the Big 12 title game, the Frogs got even with an 80-yard drive on which Dugan had 95 yards rushing. He collapsed to his knees in the end zone after his 8-yard touchdown with 1 minute 51 seconds left in regulation, then had to throw the game-tying two-point conversion. Dugan wept after the overtime loss to K-State, distraught that he was unable to give the Horn Frogs a conference title despite his gutsy fourth-quarter comeback. That just kind of motivates everybody to go the extra yard, not only for our teammates, but for him, Johnston said. Johnston said every time the Frogs get in sort of a dark place, he's always the one to come, especially with the offense, kind of be that spark. I think a big part of our success is, because of that mentality that he has, and everybody watching him every single day, and watching what he does, and how much he cares about his teammates, and how much he loves those guys, and how he would do anything in the world for them, Dykes said. Dugan graduated from TCU's business school December 17th, and has already said he will skip his available extra college season for the NFL draft. Even though he finished second to USC quarterback Caleb Williams in the Heisman Trophy voting, Dugan won the Davey O'Brien Award. He is the first TCU player to win the quarterback award named after the school's only Heisman Trophy winner in 1938, a national championship season. The Iowa Gatorade Player of the Year and four-star recruit, Dugan started 10 times as a true freshman for TCU in 2019. Before the start of the 2020 season, a previously unknown heart issue was discovered during enhanced preseason testing during the pandemic. Two days after a procedure to fix the heart tissue, Dugan needed emergency surgery because of a blood clot. The son of a coach didn't miss a game. Everybody believes in Max, linebacker D. Winters said. He's a confident player, and he has a lot of maturity to him. Ask any of his teammates, and any of the players who go against him, and they will all say the same. It means a lot. I think you need to have self-confidence, 
but a lot of that self-confidence comes from people around you that their opinions really matter to you, Dugan said. It makes you play a lot more free, a little bit more loose. Raiders pound Dakota State. Carlson scores 26 to lead Northwestern in Bellevue Classic. It's out of Omaha. The Northwestern men's basketball team used a dominant first half to down Dakota State 94-61 on Thursday at the Bellevue Classic. The Red Raiders, coming off a 19-day holiday break, opened the game on a 14-4 run through the first two and a half minutes, in part due to nine points from Dylan Carlson, all coming from beyond the arc. Northwestern continued to build up their lead from that point, holding a double-digit advantage the rest of the way. The largest first-half lead for the Raiders was 38 points when Matt Onken dropped in a basket to make the score 62-24 with 30 seconds in the opening half. Northwestern shot a blistering 71.4% from the field with 12 threes made in the first half while holding the Trojans at 37.5% shooting culminating with a 64-27 to halftime lead. Dakota State started the second half on an 11-2 run, but Northwestern continued to control the game through the final frame. The Raiders extended the lead to as high as 42 points at the 8 minutes and 24 second mark, while finding minutes for each active player in today's game. I thought our guys would have done a great job preparing the last few days and did things over the break on their own that we challenged them to do, head coach Chris Corver said. It was a great first game back from the break. We're growing, and I thought our guys overall did a really good job. When you're up 30-plus at halftime, it's hard to continue to play with that same type of focus, but I loved the unselfish play from our guys today. Carlson hit six threes on his way to a 26-point outing. Three other players scored in double figures in Onken, Connor Geddes, and Craig Sturk. The Raiders dished out 21 assists as a team, as Grant DeMillier led the six assists. Freshman Carter Van Holzen recorded his first career basket, a dunk in the closing seconds of the game. Northwestern, who is 9-4 overall and 3-3 in the GPAC, will take part in day two of the Bellevue Classic, facing the hosts, Bellevue, in a 6.30 p.m. Saturday. Dakota State fell to 5-9 overall and 0-1 in the NSAA. We're going to turn to the health and family section for an article entitled Lounge Acts, How to Engage Your Heart and Brain Even When You're Sitting, by Heidi Godman, uh, Harvard Health Publications. The dangers of too much sitting are increasingly clear. Research regularly links a sedentary lifestyle, especially long, uninterrupted bouts of sitting, to higher risks of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, brain shrinkage, muscle loss, poor posture, back pain, and premature death. That's bad news, whether you sit a lot because of work, travel, fatigue, illness, or a simple love of lounging. Whether it's best to stay active throughout your day, get up and move every 30 minutes if possible, there are ways to make your sit time a little healthier. Challenge your brain. One way to boost the health of your sit time is is by keeping your brain active. In an active brain, neurons brain cells, fire vigorously and form new connections. Greater numbers of connections translate to greater brain reserve or backup cells if the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease start to form, said Dr. Andrew Budson, Chief of Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology at the VA Boston Healthcare System. Passive activities such as watching TV have the opposite effect on the brain. 
Neurons fire only weakly, and new connections aren't being made, Budson says. Increasing evidence suggests that with the brain, it's use it or lose it. For example, a large study published online August 22nd by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that people who spend a lot of time sitting and watching TV seem to have higher risks for dementia than people who spent a lot of time sitting and using a computer, regardless of their physical activity levels. This doesn't mean watching TV is necessarily unhealthy. Instead, it probably means there isn't much on TV that truly engages our minds. Brain-boosting activities. To keep your brain active while you're sitting, consider turning off the TV sometimes and doing any of the following. Expand your horizons. Read a book on a new subject. Listen to new types of music or learn a new language. There are many free smartphone apps to get you started. Play a game. Play cards or a board game with friends, or play word games on an app or with pen and paper. Don't play the game for too long. Keep challenging your brain, Budson said. Get something on paper. Write a poem for a friend. Type a story for your grandkids. Draw a picture and color it. Or paint with watercolors. It doesn't have to be an award winner. Just let your creativity flow. Take up a new hobby. Try your hand at a hobby that's suited to sitting. Ideas include knitting, crocheting, needlepoint, cross-stitch, model building, or leatherworking. There are many starter kits available online. Visit with friends. Face-to-face interactions, even when sitting, engage the brain and promote new brain cell connections, Budson said. Make some music. Play an instrument if you have one. Learn a new song or come up with your own, even a short one. Make sure to vary the activities you do while you're parked in a chair or on the couch. Varied challenges, especially new ones, make the brain work harder, which keeps it healthier, Budson said. Exercise while seated. Yes, it really is possible to do an effective aerobic workout, the kind that gets your heart and lungs working, from a seated position. Doing a series of moves with your arms and legs, such as arm circles, air punches, leg lifts, and marching or stepping, will increase your heart rate and get your blood flowing. The key is sustaining the activities for 10, 20, or 30 minutes, said Janice McGrail, a physical therapist at Harvard-affiliated Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston. What makes a good aerobic workout when you're seated? Anything that motivates you to move, McGrail said. It could be a calisthenics workout, or it could be a seated boxing workout. There are seated dance routines choreographed to many kinds of music, including disco, country, and even polkas. From a seated position, you can also do strengthening exercises using dumbbells, such as biceps curls, resistance bands, such as rowing movements, or your body weight, such as leg lifts, that you hold for five seconds. These exercises make your muscles stronger and help you control blood sugar and metabolism, how fast your body burns fuel. While seated, you can also do stretching exercises on most of the major muscle groups, such as the neck, shoulders, arms, and legs to keep them long, supple, and less prone to injury. And all exercise, whether it's aerobic activity, strengthening, or stretching, helps the body maintain good health. It wards off chronic disease, such as heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes, keeps your muscles and bones strong, improves balance, helps control mood and weight, promotes better sleep, and thereby protects your independence. It also protects your brain. Exercise promotes the growth of new brain cells and boosts memory and blood flow to the brain, Budson said. A word about workouts. 
To find free seated workout videos, check YouTube. Search for the kind of exercise that interests you and see if there's a seated version, such as seated line dancing workout. It's best to follow a workout from a reliable source, such as a university, Silver Sneakers, a health and fitness program partnered with Medicare, a certified personal trainer, or a physical therapist. To do a seated workout of any kind, take the same careful approach as you would with any workout. Use a stable chair, such as a dining chair. Wear socks and sneakers to protect your feet. Start with a warm-up of slow movements for a few minutes before your workout, and then do a cool-down of slow movements after your workout, McGrell said. Finally, remember that the best workout is the one you'll do regularly. Aim for 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week, plus daily stretching and strengthening at least two times per week. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.